Well, Grace, I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And if you're watching online, first of all, it's so good to have you uh, watching with us. If you're watching this later, you're not going to know what the choir just sang, but that song, My Life is in Your Hands, goes perfectly with my message. And we didn't, I had no idea uh, until, I, until I looked at the schedule of what they were singing. Man, it goes perfect with where we're going. So I'm just going to jump in. If you haven't been here for a while, we're going through uh, the book of Revelation. And last week, we began our study over uh, two chapters, chapter chapters two and three, in which there are seven messages that Christ gives, seven real, unique churches, but also messages that we're able to learn from. And so last week, I talked about the big theme of, of these two chapters is that Jesus knows his bride, the church. He knows, he knows his bride, the church. And so last week we looked at uh, the, the first part of chapter two in, in which he's writing to a church in Ephesus and we talked about the fact that Jesus knows what his church loves. Well, we're gonna keep reading through this and, and so every week as we look at each of the, the, the letters to the churches, some weeks uh, we'll get to multiple churches like this week we'll get to hopefully a couple. At least I got it through in the first service. We'll see if I get through it in this one. But we're gonna have multiple points. We'll end up with seven points and if you get the message guides, you can follow along and, and see what's going on. And if you're like, message what? Uh, we, we have message guides. If, you, if you're new, like on your way in at, at, the, at the back doors, there's a little table that has message guides with sermon notes. And, and then if you have the app, our church center app, you can follow along there. But I wanna, I wanna just jump in because we're gonna look at two churches today that Jesus commends. In fact, out of the seven churches, they're the only two churches and that, that does not include a challenge to repent. And we're gonna be looking at the church of Smyrna and churches of Philadelphia and at the end say, okay, what can we learn from these churches? So let's pick up our reading in verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and, and Jesus is getting ready to describe himself, he does this at the beginning of each, of each challenge, each message. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Very significant. And then Jesus always talks about something he knows about the church here in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. But let me, let me just pause. I'll pick up our reading here in just a second. So, so just to give you a little background, Smyrna is, uh, is a city in, in Asia that uh, its name means myrrh. Remember, you know, remember the wise men brought, what they bring to Jesus? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. So what is myrrh? Like, what, what, what is it? Well, it's, it's, it's an ointment used in the embalming process, which is unique because I don't think there's anything accidental in these messages. And I believe that even the, 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 the name of this city is, is significant. Now, they had a town, a city motto. You know, like, like there are cities that have certain mottos. For instance, if you, if you drive into Reno, Nevada, they, they have their little motto there when you're, when, when you're uh, driving into town. And when I was in Ohio, uh, there was some town, I can't remember what the name of the town was, but they had a motto that said, you know, we're the, we're, we're the world's uh, biggest little city or something like that. Like, it's just a motto. Well, the motto of Smyrna was first in Asia. Now they were, you know, they were a pretty powerful city, a very wealthy city. 
Um, in Smyrna was probably the world's greatest market. People would come from all over. They would buy in bulk. It was kind of like Costco. They had like the first Costco was right there in Smyrna. But whatever they were first in, they were actually, they were actually first for sure in, in some pretty jacked up perversity and depravity type things. And most of that had to do with their worship of the goddess Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E. You can look that up. Uh, so interesting fact, the, the Romans had many, they were, they were pantheistic, they had many different gods that they worshiped. And one of the gods, uh, but I would say this, the only god that they were commanded to worship, that the Roman Senate had actually passed a resolution saying that all of their citizens had to worship this god was the goddess Sabel. And I, in long story, you can do some research yourself, but it goes all the way back to Alexander the Great, who came upon Smyrna when he was marching across Asia, conquering Asia, and, and Smyrna had fallen into disrepair across the centuries. He, he knew that this was supposedly the, uh, where, where Sabel was from, and, and, and there was a temple to her at the very top of a mountain or a hill. He went to the top there and said that somehow Sabel had given him some special word, and he said, we're going to rebuild the city. And they rebuilt it. It was beautiful. But the practices that were involved, like, just study it yourself. I'm not getting into it. It is so messed up. We have a mixed audience. We have young audience. I'm not even, it's that messed up. And I, I can, like, I don't have a problem talking about anything. This one is pretty messed up, okay? So, so they were, they were known for, uh, you know, for the, for, for, for the sensual city, but, but also this was a place in which the, the Christians were facing great discrimination. And it wasn't just from, from the pagans, though they, they received that as well. They received it from, from Jews who you would think are, are brothers and sisters, at least in many cases, uh, related by ethnicity, there were Jewish Christians, but, but they had actually, they would work in tandem with pagans, turning in Christians for different crimes. Uh, again, that's not spelled out here. It's what we know from recorded human history. And so Christians were discriminated. In fact, in Smyrna, you were not allowed to buy bread from a Christian baker. You, uh, the, the, there was slander. They were accused of, of, uh, of being atheist and anarchist. Because they didn't worship Sabel, they, uh, they believed that following Jesus was a threat to the government. But it wasn't just that. It, it went beyond just slander and discrimination. In Smyrna, they had you know, great theaters, but they had in a great arena. It's a little bit smaller than Albertson Stadium. Uh, it seated uh, over 30,000 people. And they were known for the chariot races, for their gladiator competitions, their version of MMA. And uh, they were also, unfortunately, known as a place where Christians who were arrested before thousands of people were given over to wild beasts. And they were given a chance to renounce Christ, which many of them did. But many of the Christians would not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. And man, the rest, of the, the rest of the story is that this was a place where great, horrific, tragic things took place. Well, with all this discrimination and, and persecution, the church was one of the smallest churches that, that Jesus sends a message to. They were small in, in favor and in influence, power, riches. Man, what Jesus says is that you are rich. They were strong in faith. They had Jesus. And if you've got Jesus, 
It's enough. In fact, church, maybe that's something we need to remember. If you have Christ, he's enough. And, and it's interesting because when Jesus describes himself, he uses power language. In essence, they're facing death. And what does he say? He says, these are the words of the first and last who died and came to life. In essence, what he's, what he's saying is, is that your faith is warranted. I know what you're going through. I've been there, but your faith in me is warranted. But as we keep reading in verse 10, he doesn't tell them what you think. Because the way the movie script would go is that if they're suffering, Jesus is gonna step in and give a, a message that I'm coming in, I'm gonna swoop in and I'm gonna save the day. But that's not at all what he says in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, real quick, that, that, that 10 days, I, I told you a few weeks ago that, man, there are more quotations and allusions to the Old Testament and Revelation than in any other book of the Bible. And this is actually alluding to what took place when Daniel and his friends, this is in Daniel chapter one, when Daniel and his friends were brought into captivity into Babylon, they were given the opportunity to, in essence, say, okay, you're part of us now. You're going to worship who we worship. You're going to eat what we eat. And, and Daniel and, and his three friends said, no, we're actually going to stand. We're not going to do this. And he asked that they be put to the test for 10 days. And for 10 days, they didn't eat of the food or the drink offered to idols. And in essence, that would be the, the compromising their faith, their beliefs. And he said, test us and see what is revealed. Well, this is an allusion to this. Jesus is saying testing is going to happen. And the testing is going to reveal something. By the way, real quick, you, you know the difference between testing and temptation, right? Maybe not. Okay, so let's, let's explain this. So God does not tempt us. In James chapter one, uh, James, James says, let, let no one say when he's tempted that, that this is God doing this. But while God doesn't tempt, God does allow us to be tested. There are, are times in which we are tested and the test reveals what we really have. A few years ago, uh, we, we hosted the Voice of the Martyrs conference here. And if you know anything about the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, it's a great missions organization. And many of their missionaries are in, uh, are in, in countries where and you can literally die for the cause of Christ. And, and by the way, just so you know, right now we're, we're, we're meeting here in an air-conditioned uh, room. Thank God that we need to turn on air conditioning, that it's warm enough. Like, I'll, I'll give God thanks for 80-degree weather, but... Here's the thing, we have brothers and sisters that are literally dying today because they believe in Jesus Christ in North Korea and in other, in other countries. And, and, and at this particular conference, there was a lady who had presented here and then she was gonna present at our Middleton Grace campus the next day. And so I went over just to make sure everything was, was set up and good to go for her. And, and I listened to her share. And in her, in, in, as, as she was sharing, she was pointing out she can't fully straighten out her, her fingers her, her feet are so crippled she can hardly walk. And, and this is from, from when she was a teenager. And somebody shared with her about Christ and, 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 and she believed and, and began following Christ. And, and she said, I could not 
like what I had found I couldn't keep it to myself and, and I knew that I had to be careful but I would share with a few people and there was just a small little group of, of, of family that she was having Bible studies with and, and one of the family members turned her in and she was arrested and literally tortured. She cannot, she couldn't, she can't walk right, her hands, she couldn't straighten them out and she said, I was, I was presenting a while ago and she said a person came up to me after the presentation And she said, oh, you are amazing. I could never go through what you went through. I could never go through something like that. And this little Korean lady said, I stopped her and said, hold on a second. She said, you don't know what you can go through until you actually go through it because she said, it's not you that goes through it. What you find is that Jesus takes you through that. And she said, you don't know what you have in Jesus until you're tested. And I'm like, whoa, that'll preach right there. That is good. And it's, it's true. You see, this, this testing reveals this and, and God allows his church to be tested And here's the hard reality that he's telling the church in Smyrna. The suffering is going to intensify. And what we know from from history is that this went on for two centuries in Smyrna. They were persecuted even to the death. But what he's saying is the time of testing, it's in my hands and I know what you're going through. In fact, the thing that marks this church is this. Jesus knows when his church suffers. Jesus knows when his church suffers. And what he says as we continue to read the end of verse 10 into 11, he says, be faithful unto death. What he's saying is, even if it costs you your life, be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He's talking about what happens after judgment, hell. Now real quick, I don't know who I'm speaking to. Like we are a very diverse church. Uh, We come from all kinds of different backgrounds, believers, unbelievers. And by the way, I love that anybody's here. I pray that you meet Jesus. That's that's, that's the whole thing. That's the reason we preach and do what we do. But we love celebrating the fact that we we have a a king. We have a victor. His name is Jesus Christ. That being said, um, I just, I want to make sure that we understand. And we're going to dig into this, especially as we get towards the end of Revelation. We believe in a literal hell. There is such a thing as hell. That's not some antiquated thing out there. Oh, you know, that, that, that somehow I was like, well, I, I don't just see how God, you know, could be a good God if there's such a thing as hell. And my, my thing has always been this. I actually don't see how God can be God if there isn't hell. Now, let me explain why. Scripture reveals that God, he is long-suffering. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yet there is such a thing as, as his, his, his holy standard. And it's, it's very clear, we're saved by grace through faith. We're, we're given the opportunity to repent, but God is not God. If he says that, that this has to happen, and if not, that there's going to be consequences to pay, if he's like, ah, it's not a big deal, he's not really God. And so to me, a God who is not just and who is not faithful to his word can't possibly be God. Does that make sense? which is why it's a miracle in how Christ became our perfect substitute. It had to be Christ and it could only be Christ. But the reality is, is, is this, he's saying that, that be faithful unto death 
And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And this is the one who actually has died and who has been raised. He's telling, he's telling them this. He's like, the story isn't over when you've died here. Oh, there is a life to come like you cannot imagine. Now, real quick, let's jump over to the church in Philadelphia. So the church in Philadelphia is very similar. It's in chapter 3. And so you're like, oh, man, you just skipped some other churches. We're coming back. The reason I'm looking at Smyrna in Philadelphia is because it makes sense. They, they're facing similar things here. Jesus commends them. We pick up our reading in, in chapter 3, verse 7. And, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Again, giving the great, man, he, he is powerful. He's in control. He said, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Real quick, let me just, uh, I, I got to take you back. I, out of all of the books of the Bible that are quoted in Revelation or alluded to, none is quoted more than, uh, than, the, than Isaiah. If I remember right, it's something like 114 times or something like that. There are direct quotations from the prophet Isaiah. So I'm going to give you something to write down in the side here, and you can research it later, write it down in your notes. Look up Isaiah chapter 60, 60, Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 14 to have full historical context for what I'm, what I'm going to talk about just real quick to give this whole idea of bowing down. In Isaiah 60, uh, there, I don't know what just happened there, that was good. The, stay with me people, we're going to make it. Um, there was a prophecy that Isaiah made and he said that there's coming a day when Gentiles will come down, uh, when they will come and they will bow down before Israel in the last days. And what he talks about in Isaiah 60, this bowing down is not a posture of humiliation so much, it's, I mean, of, of humbling to Israel themselves. It's them actually worshiping the God that Israel worships. And so in Isaiah 60, it's talking about there's coming a day when there's going to be this genuine turning to and, and worship of the true God. Now, most people reading here where it talks about that the Jews are going to come bow down, they're like, wait, well, this doesn't make any sense because Isaiah says it's going to be the Gentiles who come and bow down. But, it, but it's interesting how, how scripture all fits together and there's this understanding, not that the church comes in and replaces Israel as God's chosen people, but, also, but, it, but it does speak that, that the church is made up of those who are true Jews, if you will. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter four. He talks about this in Galatians. That, that those who are truly Jews are those who worship the true God. That's why he says, these people here, they're part of the synagogue of Satan. Now, we know from, again, rabbinical writings, not from, not from uh, the, the Bible, but from uh, rabbinical writings, from Jewish, Jewish history, rabbis wrote these, uh, these Jews in Philadelphia and rebuked them. There are multiple rebukes because they said they are compromising with pagan culture. They were, they, they were worshiping, they, they were trying to say they were worshiping God, but at the same time, they were making allowances for, for other things so they could gain power. Somewhere along the line, they, they, they exchanged 
righteousness for power. And that's why he says that they, they lie because they're, they're not real Jews. They're actually part of a synagogue of Satan. Now, this whole thing of them coming down and bowing, his whole point is this. When he said in, in Isaiah 60, the Gentiles are gonna bow, his point is this. These people are not true Jews in one sense. They don't acknowledge the truth of God's word. They are as the Gentiles, but what he's saying is that though their confidence is in their ethnic background, he's saying there's gonna come a day when he is going to bring these Jewish unbelievers and they are going to bow down before the God of his faithful covenant people and that a revival is coming that is even going to touch unbelieving Jews. That's good news. There's something cool, but what he does here is he turns it upside down. This would have been very, very offensive to the, the, the Jewish people that were opposing, uh, opposing this, this group here. So let me, let me keep right. Man, there's so many cool things here. Like I run out of time because like, oh man, that's, I gotta, gotta talk about that. So he says, he says this in, in, uh, in verse uh, 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Good news. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We're gonna come back to that. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So real quick, I want you to write down this, this uh, last point, and then we're going to make some application here in just a minute. Jesus not only knows when his church suffers, Jesus knows the real level of his church's commitment. How many of you know what the word Philadelphia means? Brotherly love. Well, I married a girl from Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I will tell you that, uh, that Philadelphia might have the title of the city of brotherly love, but they're messed up. They've got the cheese steak and that's about all they got going with them because I married Lori and got the last good thing out of there. Like she's back. Like I don't like the Eagles or anything else, but I, I'm just telling you, like Philadelphia is, is crazy. Like, I mean, so crazy. Like you go to sports games, it's like going to Smyrna Arena. Like, do you remember the hearing about where the Phillies fans threw batteries at an outfielder for the, uh, for, for the St. Louis Cardinals? Like they're just pegging him with batteries. Like, what? But I think the real low came at a halftime of the Philadelphia Eagles game. It was snowing and Santa Claus came out for the halftime show and they made slush balls and were pelting Santa Claus with snow. Who throws snowballs with Santa Claus? Like you've got depravity. Like I'm gonna tell you, my father-in-law said, yeah, it's actually, you know, Philadelphia is actually the city of brotherly shove. That's what we're known for. And, and so what I, what I read is there's probably some similarities here. They're known they are known for their persecution. They're hard-hearted, but it's very interesting. In fact, guys, show up the map. I've got a map uh, here. If you'll see over to the left, uh, kind of, I don't know, two-thirds of the way up or something like that, you see Pergamum that's over there by the coast. That was a major, that was a major Roman city. There's a highway that you'll see going, uh, going southeast and kind of going down toward the south, and, and it's going to South Asia, and you'll see Philadelphia there in the middle. Here's the thing, Philadelphia was not 
a major city. In fact, it's the smallest city of all of the seven churches that he's writing to. And yet, its significance is this. They're, they were actually known as a missionary city, not, for, not because of Christian uh, things, but because of uh, Ro the Romans. They, they actually, Philadelphia was a place where they taught Greek culture and that sort of thing, but it was also a, a, a key place where all of, you know, the highway came through there. It's like Mountain Home, you know what I'm saying? Like you're going from Salt Lake City to, to Boise. Mountain Home, you stop to fuel up unless you're you know, in, uh, you know, at, the, at the air base there. So it's the same thing. But yet what he says is this. He, he makes this point when he says, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I believe what he's talking to the church is this. He's like, I have put you in a perfect location with the opportunity to share the gospel. Because this was actually a main highway that the Roman military would use as they're coming to and fro. When the Jews fled from Jerusalem, when Jerusalem fell, it's said that almost every Jew took this particular highway at some point. And what he's saying is like, you are set up and it doesn't matter what you face, even your life, your testimony is going to be an open door. It doesn't, no, it doesn't matter how much they try to persecute you, they cannot shut this. And so he told this group, man, because of your faithfulness, Revival is going to happen. You have little power now, but hold on. You're going to be the instrument that I use to usher in an unbelievable move of God. But I'm going to reveal through this the true level of your commitment. Don't let anyone seize your crown. You see, the crown was something that was promised. In essence, what he was saying, don't let anybody take away what's already been promised to you. If, you. if you throw in the towel now, you're gonna miss out on what God has for you in eternal life. And here's what I wanna do, man, I, I, gotta, I gotta hurry, but I get so fired up about this stuff, man, I, just, I love it. There, there are three takeaways that I want you to write down, okay? What, what's this mean for us today? And I'm, I'm, I'm cutting just a little bit here. In fact, later this fall, I'm not promising, but I'm actually thinking about, in addition to Sundays, I, I think I might do a weeknight class where I can throw in all the information that I can't get to on Sunday. So file that away. Pray that God frees up my schedule. And uh, if we get 1.5 million, that'll help. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the first thing I want you to write down is this. The church is strengthened through suffering. The, the, the church is strengthened through suffering. Now, now, real quick, three things we need to clarify. Not everything we call persecution is persecution. All right? Because the, the key word is suffering for Christ. So let me just say this. If at Christmas time, as you're walking out of the store, a clerk says, happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, you did not suffer religious persecution. Okay? Like, <laughs> I just tell you, it's just terrible what we have to live through. Oh, relax. Like, people get so fired up about what Starbucks puts on their cups. I could care less. They're not a Christian company. I don't expect them to put Christian themes on their cups. Now, In-N-Out Burger, coming to, coming to here, John 3.16, right there on the bottom. Praise God. We'll support them. But anyway, uh, that's free. Secondly, another thing we need to write down. There's a difference between suffering for Christ and suffering from the consequences of being a jerk. I feel very strongly about this. It is possible to stand for the right thing and do it in the wrong way. 
And there are times that we face def defensiveness and we face suffering not because of Christ. We face suffering because we just honestly care more about right than we do about people. Now, that does not mean that we ever compromise truth. I have great respect for, uh, for uh, those that are part of this church. Man, I wanna stand for truth regardless, but we gotta speak the truth in love. And there are some times that we go through things that have nothing to do with Christ. It's because we did things totally opposite of the way Christ would do it. So don't blame, don't blame suffering. Like, oh, I'm just suffering because they said this. Well, what did you say to them? Like, you, you get what I'm saying. The third thing is this, um, there, there's actually no value in actually seeking out persecution. And what I mean by this is if, if, if suffering happens, it happens. But even Jesus, Peter, Paul, uh, others in the New Testament, there were times like when, when they were going to be uh, persecuted or whatever, they actually left because the timing wasn't right. We sometimes think that we, we're more spiritual if, if, we, if you know, we go through suffering. That's actually a self-obsessed version that's actually really dangerous. There actually, there's a strain of a belief and uh, you know, existed for years in the Catholic church that, that, that says the more pain, if I suffer all these different things, then it means that, that I'm more like Jesus. No, it just means that you suffer things you didn't have to suffer. You're not suffering them for Christ. You're doing things to yourself so you feel better about yourself. If persecution happens, persecution happens. But we don't just go looking out to make a point. Make sense? So, so when it comes to true suffering, though, I believe Christians can suffer with purpose. Christians can suffer with purpose. Suffering reveals, this whole testing, it reveals who we really are. Listen, all, everybody suffers, but when it comes to suffering for Christ, what it does is it reveals who we are. And I will tell you, after suffering, you will not stay the same. It'll either make you a stronger Christian or it's gonna reveal the fact that you don't have faith. It's either gonna push you into a, a, a greater love or a greater hardness, a greater wholeness or, or, or greater brokenness. The, the thing about suffering is it, it will not leave you where you were. You know, yesterday I officiated a wedding, great couple, and I'm so excited for them. But as we were, as I was asking them to repeat the vows after me, the thought came to my mind, I'm like, man, you're making these vows for better, for worse, but you don't know worse yet. And here's the thing, I have full belief that this couple, they believe strongly uh, and they made the commitment and they meant with all their heart, but, but come on, listen. You guys know, you don't know what worse is until you're there. You just don't know. But when the worst comes, it reveals what we really have. And I, I believe that suffering leads to growth and intimacy for the Christian. It leads to an increased dependence upon Jesus. Our, our, our church has been praying for a couple that's part of our church family, Kevin and Wendy Burkholz. And I, I don't see Kevin and Wendy here. I don't know what service they're gonna be in today. But if you don't know the story, their five-year-old son has cancer. And they have been on, uh, on a, a, a crazy journey um, just a few weeks ago, he, had, he was in cardiac arrest for nine minutes. Uh, there's just been so many different things on this journey, but, but God has been so faithful. And, and a common thing that I've heard from people that have either met with them, been in the hospital room, or had the chance to talk, as they're reflecting out loud with me or I've overheard them talking to other people, the thing that keeps coming up is I don't understand 
how they can keep the perspective they have going through what they're going through. And I just want to say something. Kevin and Wendy have cried real tears. They've cried to the point they don't have any tears left. They've hurt deeply. They, like, they, they've struggled with doubts. They've had all of those questions. But here's what Kevin told me it was a few weeks ago. He said, as hard as this is, and I wouldn't want this, he said, it's, it's actually shown me more about who Christ is. And he said, I've, he said we used to, we were all, when we started this thing, we were looking for the big miracle and the, the big thing. But he said, now I'm beginning to see how God moves even in the small things. And I'm thanking God for what he's doing even in the small things. The only thing that makes this, this possible is, is a, a, a time of testing. A, a, a faith that's never tested is a faith that can't be trusted. It has to be put to the test at some point. You don't know what you have in Jesus until Jesus is all that you have. Now, let me, let me uh, move to the second thing. The pain of compromise is greater than the pain of opposition. As, I, as I'm reading through what Jesus is saying to Smyrna and Philadelphia, he is commending them. What I, what, I, what I pick up is that the pain of compromise is greater than the pain of opposition. To, to illustrate this, let me tell a quick story. It's maybe one, one of my favorite stories from church history. How many of you are Seattle uh, Seahawks fans? Let me see your hand. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, no, teasing. If you're a Seattle Seahawks fan, you, you, there's a good chance that you remember what is called the Beast Quake Run of 2010. Anybody remember that? 2010, wild, oh yeah, come on, wild card game against the Saints and Marshawn Lynch, dude, took the handoff and broke like, it felt like 32 tackles and there's only 11 guys trying to bring him down. Scored a touchdown. Here's the crazy thing, when he scored the touchdown, the noise of the crowd was so loud that it recorded uh, as a seismic activity, like there was an earthquake. That's how loud the crowd was. And so they call it, uh, he, you know, uh, he, he was called the beast, beast mode. It's called the beast quake run. So I want you to take that idea that we can grasp, you know, you know a crowd cheering, and I want you to, to, to go with me. This is about, oh, probably 50 or 60 years after John has written Revelation. And the leader of the church in Smyrna, uh, he's, a, he's, he's called a bishop. His name's Polycarp, kind of like a lead pastor. Well, man, for 200 years... For 200 years, the persecution was very intense here in Smyrna. And in fact, in, in this particular season, about 155 AD, something like that, um, they had been arresting many Christians who had been turned in by, uh, you know, by their Jewish neighbors, by pagan neighbors, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're pagans or whatever. And, and so many of them had been, had been fed to the lions. And, and so what happened though, as is they got this idea, if we can actually take down the bishop of the church, we can actually destroy the church, which just showed they don't know much about the church. But anyway, they sent a Roman guard to come arrest Polycarp. Well, Polycarp, initially, he, he didn't want to go anywhere, but believers said, no, you got to get out of here, and they took him to another location. The Roman guard tortured somebody. They gave him up. They show up to arrest him, and Polycarp does not run, even though he knew they were coming. Instead, he meets them at the gate, invites them into the cottage, has a meal prepared for them, feeds them, makes sure they have plenty to drink, and he said, I'm asking you for one thing before I go with you. Give me one hour to pray. They gave him one hour. 
So after the hour's up, they, they take him, they make their way to Smyrna. They weren't too far away. As they're coming into town, the uh, Roman equivalent of a, of a police chief, he and his father, two very influential men in Smyrna, they, they actually intercepted the, the Roman guard and they asked for the opportunity to speak to Polycarp. And what they wanted to do was change his mind. And so they, they called him up into the, the, the carriage and, and they just kept just, just working him. Man, what is the big deal? Just, just offer the incense to the emperor. It's not a big deal. You can still hold on to your God. And, and, and he ignored them. But finally, they just kept badgering him. And he finally looked at them and directly he said to them, I am not going to do what you say. They were, they were so angry, they, they, it says they shoved him out of the cart. As on his way, as he's, as he's falling out of the cart, his shin either hit the cart or, or the wheel. Something happened to where he was injured. But it says that instead of laying there, he got up, didn't take a look back, and hobbled as fast as he could to the stadium where over 30,000 people had gathered because they had heard that the great polycarp was going to be brought in and he was going to be given the opportunity to either deny his faith or they were probably hoping he would be thrown to the wild beasts. Irenaeus records this. He was, uh, he, he was a guy that had been discipled by Polycarp and, and a church historian. He writes that as he entered the stadium, that it was so loud, this is Irenaeus' words, he says that, that, that a man's voice could not be heard. They were raucous. They were convinced that Polycarp was going to give it up, that this, that this was where it was, that he was either going to die, and the church is going to die, or he's going to deny his faith in Christ, whatever, we're going to get rid of these Christians. But every Christian, there were multiple Christians that day that it was recorded that said that though they couldn't hear another human voice, as Polycarp entered the stadium, they all heard the same thing, and they heard, this, they heard somebody say, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. He was brought to stand before the proconsul and he was asked to, not, to deny his Christ and to, to offer incense. He asked him to declare that Caesar was Lord. Polycarp responded this way, for 86 years I've been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He said, very well then, you're gonna be thrown to the wild beasts and Polycarp, it's recorded, said, bring them on. He's my kind of man. <laughs> when, they found, when they saw that he was not worried about the wild beasts, they said, actually, no, we're going to burn you alive. And so they brought in wood to the middle of the Colosseum with 30,000 people watching, which they were chanting. They wanted to see him cast to the wild beasts. But they said, we're going to burn him alive. And so they, they made preparation. They actually built a little cross and they were going to nail him to the cross because they didn't want him to run away from the fire. And Polycarp said, there's no need to, uh, to nail me uh, to, to this cross. He said, I'm going to stay right here. I believe my God will sustain me. They lit the fire and they said it was like a ship's sails filled with wind. And instead of consuming him, the fire went all around him. Instead of the smell of, of, of burning flesh, they said it was a smell similar to the smell of frankincense. And as the crowd was, was astonished and they quieted, the proconsul in anger said, would somebody kill this man? And finally, somebody took a dagger and killed him. It was the only way they could get this man to die. But he died. But his death 
was not at all the end of the church in Smyrna. In fact, there were people that came to the Lord that day. It said out of the 30,000 people that left the stadium that day, many of them marveled at the difference in the way a person dies between an unbeliever and a believer. I've read, I've, I've read that story, and in fact, even this week as I, as I was looking, this, looking at this, Polycarp knew the suffering was not the end of the story. Death was not the story, actually. It was a gateway that was gonna usher him into the presence of the God, of, of Christ Jesus, the one that he served that had done so much for him. And I think it's good for us to remember this whole thing. Do I want suffering? No. I don't. I don't pray. Like, I don't, this morning, I did not pray, Lord, would you please help me suffer in some way today? I did not pray that prayer. But I will tell you this. As Paul writes, if you're going to suffer, to suffer for the cause of Christ is one of the greatest things that could ever happen. Not suffering for my stupidity, suffering for the cause of Christ. In church, outside of a mighty move of God, there is coming a day, and I don't say this to freak us out or anything like that, the church will suffer. There is going to be a time of testing that even comes to the United States. But I will tell you this, I do not fear this. In, in one hand, I don't ask for this, I don't want this. But what testing reveals is what we have. But what suffering does is it actually strengthens the church. This is why Christ says, the one who conquers will not actually be hurt by the second death. I gotta shut up. Last thing I'm gonna have you write down is this. Jesus loves it when his church fully depends on him. Jesus can't say enough good about these two churches. And guys, as, as a pastor, this is who I want grace to be. If there's, anything that could, if, if there's anything that could summarize Grace Bible Church, I would love for it to be said, you know, I don't know much about that church, but they seem to be a church that fully depends on Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything better a church that, that even when opposed by Satan, we lean even more into Christ and all that he offers. And this is why he writes to the church of Philadelphia, don't let anyone seize the crown that you have. See, those crowns were, were very important. That, that there, there was a Roman tradition that when, an, and when a Roman army conquered another kingdom, that they would take the deposed king and they would march him with his hands tied behind the Roman emperor, there would be crowds that lined the street. There were certain flowers that, that would, there would be in a Roman fact. This is what Paul alludes to in 2 Corinthians where he talks about uh, the, there's this great procession. He's using it as an analogy. To some, the smell is the smell of death. To some, it's the smell of life. It was a smell of victory to everybody that was watching this, all the Roman citizens, but to the guy that was walking with his hands tied, it was the smell of death. But they would take the crown off of the deposed king and they would put it on the head of the emperor and it was just another, it was just another symbolic way of saying we are large and we are in charge, we win. And what Jesus is actually alluding to is that there's coming day when there's gonna be a great procession there's going to be a time in which the, the, the crowds gather and we're going to be shouting together. In fact, we're going to get into this when we get into to, to chapter 4 and chapter 5 where the crowds are shouting, Jesus is Lord, worthy is the Lamb. We're going to hear this. There are going to be crowns that are thrown at the feet of Jesus. And, and that's the crazy thing. The, the crowns are going to be thrown by us. 
We get crowns. We're not just spectators. We get to be participators in this. We are, it's the craziest thing. We'll reign with Christ. I don't fully understand that. We're gonna dig into that here in the next few weeks. I don't fully understand this. But what he's saying is don't give up now. Don't trade in what you have for what you might suffer here. The best is yet to come. Ah, Jesus knows his church. He knows it when his church suffers. But he also knows the real commitment of his church and he is glorified as his church marches on believing that the best is yet to come. And so Father, as we close this day, we close this sermon, I pray that you would do a work in your people. I don't ask for suffering, honestly. Don't want to see it. I don't want my kids to see it. I don't want my grandkids to see it. But the reality is, I don't know why or how, but suffering has many times been planned, your, your plan for strengthening your church, for beautifying your church, and preparing your church. And God, what I wanna be, the, the point is not the suffering. The point that I want us to focus on is the one who will be faithful to us in the midst of suffering. And our God, I don't know what the days hold, but God, what I know is that you are large and in charge. And our God, my commitment is to follow you, to pick up my cross and follow you. And I'm praying that's the prayer of every person here. And our God, if there's somebody here that's never, that's never, they don't have this commitment. Maybe they've just been playing games. They're, they're Christian in name only. God, I'm praying that in, what only, in the way that only you can do, that you would speak to their heart, that you would penetrate their heart, that you would save them and change them. And God, for what you're gonna do through, through good, through bad, for your church, you will be faithful. And for that, we say thank you. And so God, we pray this in Jesus' name, truly believing the best is yet to come. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks for being here. Don't forget, if you're making pledges, drop them in the black box. It's so good to have you here. We'll see you next week.